Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had the Stephen James endorsement already appeared. In our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels is with us, the author of Playing Saints. The Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil. And uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there. They're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard Conference. And the 2015 Carol Award for the new novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. Oh, I've got something exciting planned for you today. I am going to read to you from a glossary. It is the glossary of the Gut Check Guide to Publishing, which I wrote along with my friend Ted Cluck. Uh, And the first half of the book is about uh, indie. The second half is about when and how to navigate uh, traditional publishing. And if you're thinking, wait a minute, isn't half of the premise of this podcast that you semi-bombed at navigating traditional publishing? Well, part of what you learn is what I learned in that process. And of course, Ted Cluck has successfully built a very impressive traditional publishing uh, career, and, and he shares a lot of his advice uh, as well. But uh, what I want to look at today is the glossary And uh, honestly, a Gut Check book, Gut Check Press is the indie publisher that Ted and I founded years ago. Um, A Gut Check book is always informative and entertaining beginning to end, or barring that, just entertaining beginning to end. But in this case, I think it is both. And so let me read to you uh, some informative and hopefully uh, entertaining Uh, selections from the glossary of the Gut Check Guide to Publishing subtitle, What Works, What Doesn't, and Why to Do It Your Way. Glossary. Acquisitions Editor. Someone who works for a traditional publisher, fielding, finding, and signing up new authors. In most cases, the editor who acquires you will be the one who sees your project through the entire editorial process. Advance. Money an author receives up front, allegedly in anticipation of how much he or she would have made in royalties during the first year. If that's the case, however, publishers suck at anticipating how much authors would have made in royalties during the first year because the majority of books never earn out their advance. ABA, American Booksellers Association. This is the, quote, secular book industry. See CBA. ARC stands for Advance Reader Copy. These are uncorrected proofs of books produced before the release date. They are bound, the same trim size as the finished book will be, and often have a picture of the book on the cover, creating sort of a paradox that could possibly unravel the space-time continuum. ARCs are often sent to long-lead media, like print publications, for reviewers to read or given away as a sort of booby prize after the book has been released. Author copies. The copies of your own book that you receive as part of your compensation. Sometimes your agent will haggle over the number of author copies you and she get in a given contract. For example, trying to get 40 instead of 20, which you will later realize is the monetary equivalent of a multinational company arguing over who will pick up the tab for dinner for four at Red Lobster. 
Back cover copy. The promotional stuff written on the back of the book. You're not good at writing this. Leave it to the professionals. If you demand that the publisher use your back cover copy, know this. Everyone hates you because you're the worst. Backlist. Books in the back of the catalog, still available and in print, but from previous lists. Back matter. All the stuff in the back of the book, after, like, the book. For example, author's notes, study guide, acknowledgments, appendices, index, glossary, etc. You're looking at our back matter right now, you pervert. The Big Six. The five faceless corporate giants who make up the majority of the publishing industry. It's five because one of the giants ate another one of the giants. This, giants eating other giants, is normal. Bleed. The size of the, quote, safe area around the outside of a book cover or page, inside the margin of error for the trimming of the book. That is to say, area that may be cut off and left on the floor. The term full bleed refers to pages or covers that are designed to go to the very edge. Books in Print. A compilation of books and magazines put out by Bowker, the people behind Isbins. Vanity publishers charge their customers to list them in books in print as if this were some vital thing, when it almost never makes a difference. See also Library of Congress. CBA. Christian Booksellers Association. Sounds like a club of some kind, but is really an entirely different industry from the ABA. Most literary agents work in only one world or the other, and most publishers find it difficult to cross over from one world to the other. Co-pub. Subsidy press speak for a way to screw you over while convincing you I'm doing you a solid. If you want to know more about co-pubs and what a ripoff they are, read the book. Distribution. This is a fancy term for getting your book into stores, meaning actual stores with, like, aisles and shelves and people walking around. Anybody can get onto Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com these days, so don't let some dirtbag try to sell you on distribution as, quote, getting you on Amazon. Feasibility study. The most holy of all sacraments in the world of traditional publishing, salespeople pretty much have veto power over which books get made, and a lot of that hinges on complex formulae and assessments. We have it on good authority that between three and seven sales execs die every year because a feasibility study told them to drink hemlock or commit seppuku. Did I say that right? Seppuku? Front matter. All the stuff before the book actually starts. For example, title page, copyright page, prologue, forward, page of endorsements, etc. Hybrid author. An author who publishes both traditionally and on the indie tip. Also an author, either indie or traditional, who has animal genes spliced into his or her DNA. Indie publishing. A term that sounds way more legitimate than self-publishing in that it implies a certain all-American, devil-may-care, caution-to-the-wind, up-by-your-bootstraps, purchase-a-whole-chain-of-cobra-kai-dojos-all-over-the-valley punk-rock courage, which can be clearly seen in the over-rendered wad of pixels you call a cover in the Comic Sans title page. ISBN, or ISBN, International Standard Book Number. This is the, now 13-digit, number unique to your book listed above the barcode. If your books are going to be purchased primarily online, there's likely no reason to procure an ISBN and barcode, except to feel more legit. Update, now pretty much any service you'd use for an indie book is going to just make you buy an ISBN under the guise of giving you an ISBN for free. Imprint. The name and logo on the spine of the book. 
Publishing companies often have several imprints. See also Giants Eating Other Giants. Indie authors should focus on developing just one imprint. They should also make the logo a boxing glove because boxing gloves punch people in the face. Kerning. The art of adjusting the space between letters in proportional fonts so that the words look and feel right on the page. The fact that kerning is even a thing should be an eye-opener for amateurs thinking about designing a book. Line edit. The detail-oriented second-level edit, often done by a freelance editor contracted by the publisher, catches things like awkward wording. For example, the phrase awkward wording, inconsistencies, etc. Macro edit, also sometimes called a developmental edit. This is the initial edit in which your editor sends you an eight-page letter, a page of which tells you how brilliant the book is before cataloging all the major structural problems. This is attached to a copy of your manuscript riddled with pink word comments like poison-tipped darts in a South American tourist. Midlist. If you're a midlist author, you're not a bestseller, but you're not an abject failure either, meaning you are the Cincinnati Bengals of authors. Nielsen Bookscan. The system that claims to track 80% of all retail book sales. You will accidentally discover that Author Central gives you access to raw Nielsen numbers, which will result in net grief comparable to the death of a beloved family dog. You will look into how reliable these numbers are, hoping that they're not reliable, but will eventually determine that you really are only selling three or four books a week in the whole country. Then you'll get a royalties statement and realize that Nielsen book scan numbers are pretty worthless. Orphan. A single word, or worse, part of a word, hanging out on a line all by itself at the end of a paragraph, or worse, at the end of a column. Print-on-demand, or POD, the technology that allows us to have a publishing company, given that we no longer need to have the means of printing-slash-binding-slash-fulfillment under our roof. Also, we don't have to keep inventory because print-on-demand means that when someone orders a copy of your book, it will be, wait for it, printed on demand. Proposal. The longish, annoying document you have to write before you can get a book deal. The document which the acquisitions editor will probably skip to the back page of, meaning the part where you talk about how popular you are. This document will also contain most of the information that a dozen people will independently ask you for in order to position and market your book, despite the fact that you already sent all of this information to them at the very beginning in the book proposal. Rag. An uneven margin. If text is left justified only, you'll have a right rag, i.e. the edge of the text looks ragged, like it was torn off, rather than sheared neatly. Pretty much the only time this is okay is with block quotes of verse, etc. Recto. <laughs> the right page when looking at an open book. In most cases, you want chapters to begin on a recto page. Remaindered. This is what happens to your books after a bunch of the next thing happens to it is what happens to your book when it's not selling well and the publisher literally needs to move it out of the warehouse so that it can be replaced by a more successful book. It means that your book appears in those sad bookstore bins with lots of stickers on it indicating lower and lower prices until you see a bunch of them in a bin for like a buck and you buy out the entire inventory out of rage. Not that we've ever done this. Returns. This is a subcategory of the impossible-to-read royalty statement you'll receive once in a while from your publisher. It's what happens when your book isn't selling, meaning that the booksellers start returning them to the publisher. If this happens enough, your book is remaindered. Royalty Statement This is a thick envelope that comes from the publisher. If your book is selling well, it is accompanied by a check. If it's not accompanied by a check, I always immediately throw it out, because what's the point? 
Seriously, though, you should probably read this, then get depressed, then call your friends for encouragement. Self-publishing. This is sort of an old-timey catch-all term with negative connotations because self-published books are often sad and often suck horribly. Self-publishing and indie publishing are different, but they're more different connotatively than denotatively, if that makes sense. Slush pile. This refers to the pile of unagented manuscripts that are received each day by publishing houses. It's a pejorative term, usually meant to discourage would-be authors, except that Ted's first traditionally published book in the ABA and his first and most successful book in the CBA were both slush pile manuscripts. Stacking. A typesetting term referring to more than two of the same letter or word occurring at the beginning of multiple lines in a row. This is the sort of thing indie authors rarely even think about. If you do intentionally look out for layout anomalies, your books will stand out in that they won't scream, I'm self-published! Subsidiary rights. These are contract rights, including movie rights, audiobook rights, foreign sales rights, and action figure slash plush toy rights. If your publisher sells your book to a foreign publisher, you will more than likely see about a penny on every thousand books sold. Upside, you have a book in Portuguese now, and that's kind of cool, I guess. Subsidy Press. See Vanity Press. This is where you pay an ungodly amount of money to somebody who then, quote, publishes your book. If you ever find yourself in a pitch meeting with a slime ball at a small regional publishing conference who repeatedly insists that he's from a, quote, traditional New York publishing house and then asks you for $1,000, kick him in the groin and walk away. <laughs> I don't think I wrote, I think Ted wrote that. Traditional publisher. This is where you submit a proposal, wait forever, and then they, hopefully, offer you an advance and royalties to publish your book. Queries. 1. Letters that you write to agents, trying to interest them in your writing so they'll represent you. These are always a semi-slimy attempt to convince each agent that you picked him or her out special out of all the agents in the world, when in reality you dropped like 40 other identical query letters in the mailbox, physical or virtual, at the same time. 2. Editorial notes and suggested changes that your editor sends you, which will ruin your day. Verso, the left side page when looking at an open book. Verso pages should always have an even page number. This isn't in the glossary, but nothing makes a book look more novice and less professional than having page one be on a verso page. And finally, Widow. What typographers call it when the last line of a paragraph winds up at the very top of a column or page, breaking the flow of the text. So that's the glossary from the Gut Check Guide to Publishing, which, by the way, you can buy on Amazon, but I'm not shilling that right now. Lately, I'm shilling the sequel to Playing Saint called Playing Saint All Souls Day. Uh, I would like to invite you, if you are in America's High Five, which is what many of us call Michigan, some of us, I don't know, it's on t-shirts. If you're on the west side or are willing to head to the west side, I'd like to invite you to come to a book launch party for All Souls Day. Uh, it's going to be at Baker Bookhouse, which is absolutely my favorite bookstore in the world. Just north of 28th Street, uh, not too far off the freeway there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, also known as New Jerusalem. Also known as Beer City, USA. I don't know when that happened. So that's November 2nd. Uh, All Souls Day itself uh, at 7 p.m. November 2nd, 7 p.m. at Baker Bookhouse in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, and if you are too far away or you, you know, have agoraphobia or something and you don't want to leave the house or you don't want to hop on a flight to come to an hour-long uh, book launch event where there will be cake, full disclosure, then I'd like to again invite you to a virtual launch party on October 30th 
You can find information about both of those and a link to the online launch party at my website, www.zacharybartles.com slash Day. Or if you just go on Facebook and do a search for All Souls Day launch party, I'm sure it'll be the only thing probably that comes up. Uh, And please, because you're not a savage, click uh, you intend to go. That's a nice little uh, bump to my spirits, as well as a way to get uh, Facebook to remind you, hey, this is coming up this evening. uh, So don't forget to pour a bowl of cereal, pull out your laptop, sit by the fire, and uh, hopefully... Uh, get some laughs and some interesting information about saints. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in the world of, of hagiography, as well as possibly win some copies of some books or some gut check brand espresso. So that'll do it today for not fiction. But now let's get back to Judith in the little town of Clinch Rock. Chapter 16. Judith pulled into Trent's driveway and killed the motor. The house looked deserted, which didn't surprise her. She'd been nearly home when the cryptic text had come through. Something serious happened to Dad. Please pray. Judith had run the rest of the way home, texting back on the way. There was no reply. She'd tried calling Trent twice, but it went right to voicemail. And now, a dull dread sapped her spirit as she banged on the front door yet again. No answer. Adam's car was not in the driveway, neither was his police cruiser. Maybe Trent was home, though. He might be down in his room, unable to hear the doorbell, greatly in need of comfort from a friend. She circled around the back of the house, immediately spotting the fake-looking plastic rock that had housed the marsh's spare key for as long as she could remember. She smiled, despite herself, at the long-running joke about how bad the police chief's home security was. The smile disappeared. The plastic rock was empty. Judith approached the back door to the garage slowly, carefully, wishing she had her ox goad with her. But no, at Adam's insistence, she'd turned that into kindling. She tried the doorknob. It turned easily. Stepping into the dim light of the garage, she froze, the fight-or-flight reflex rising up through her lungs, ever leaning toward fight. Someone was moving slowly down the stairs toward Trent's room. Judith scanned the walls for a weapon of some kind, a rake, a bat, a tennis racket, anything, but only saw the light switch. She flipped it, bringing the slow flicker of fluorescent tubes to bear on the two-stall garage. The figure on the stairs froze. Zoe? Judith took an unconscious step forward, blocking the top of the stairs. What are you doing here? Turning to face Judith, Zoe began a slow reascent. What do you think? I came to see if Trent was okay. His father got hurt today. How do you know that? Zoe stopped, a step below Judith. A few inches taller and wearing heels, she met her gaze eye to eye. We tell each other everything. She smiled malevolently. Judith was a little surprised that her instinct to find a weapon had not subsided one bit. Like where he hides the key to his house? Trent tell you that? Or did you just find it? Zoe pushed some strands of hair behind her ear. What Trent and I talk about is none of your business. Besides, he's not home, so you have no business here. Let's go, shall we? I've known Adam and Trent for more than ten years, Judith said, 
You don't get to tell me my business with them. Zoe rolled her eyes. I'm bored with this. Move aside, please. Judith didn't budge. She eyed the rather large purse hanging over Zoe's shoulder. If I were a cynic, she said, I might think you knew Trent wasn't home, and you were here to help yourself to something of his. Something priceless, maybe? Zoe scoffed and looked around the bare garage. What could I possibly want from this place? If you don't know, then I guess you don't tell each other everything after all. Judith took a step back, allowing Zoe to clear the stairs and exit the garage. She was a few steps out into the yard when Judith called out, Don't forget to put the key back. Zoe stopped in her tracks and turned to face Judith again. Trenton told me to hang on to it, she said. No, he didn't. Now put it back, or I'll do it for you. Judith studied the eyes of the prim and proper young woman, surprised to find no trace of fear or intimidation. Zoe reached into her purse and took out the key, tossing it at Judith's feet. I know it must be hard for you, she said with mock empathy. Daughter of a couple drunks, grinding through an utterly inconsequential existence in a trailer park, knowing your life will never amount to anything. Did Daddy do that to your face? Hmm? Judith clenched her fists, said nothing. When I'm through with Clinch Rock, Zoe continued, people like you won't be able to afford a lot for your sad little double-wides. She took a step toward Judith. Tell me, do you fear that you peaked with that stint on the wrestling team? Trenton does. It keeps him up at night. Judith set her jaw. You're lucky I followed Jesus, she said, because if I didn't, I'd knock that smug little grin right down your throat. Zoe emitted a tasteful country club laugh. Very ladylike, she said. Just see that you don't follow Jesus in my direction again. You probably think your life can't get worse, but trust me, it can. Her eyes narrowed, and she added, I suppose it's only fair to warn you that, while I've never been on a wrestling team, I did study Krav Maga in Tel Aviv and Kuntao in Indonesia. She spun on her heels and walked off around the side of the house. Trenton had scarcely left his dad's side since arriving at the hospital. He'd subsisted on gross, soggy sandwiches from a vending machine and slept in a faux leather love seat designed by a sadist. Dad was still out of it, although the doctors said it was mostly the medication. When Saturday morning arrived, Trenton finally took a lap around the hospital to stretch his legs and choked down some powdered eggs and greasy sausage in the cafeteria. And, of course, that's when his dad woke up. The first thing Trent saw as he returned to the hospital room was Ed Piper standing by the bedside, an ID badge bearing his image clipped to the breast pocket of that same old flannel shirt. He was so out of place that it took a moment to register. Dad was sitting up. Well, not sitting up per se, but his bed was inclined, his eyes were open, and he was talking to Ed. Dad! Trenton shouted, rushing to his father's side. Easy, son. Easy, the chief warned, laughing faintly. Are you okay? How do you feel? Well, my head feels like a 30-pound bowling ball, and if I move it too quickly, I feel like I'm going to puke. Other than that, never better. He seemed to remember his other guest and said, Son, I'd like you to meet Ed Piper. He's a volunteer chaplain here at the hospital. Ed smiled and held out his massive paw. Oh, we already know each other. Spent a whole week in the same cabin. Trenton smiled and gave the rough hand a shake. Good to see you again, Ed. I didn't know you worked here. Not full-time or anything, he said. I was a lifer in the Air Force, chaplain. And ever since I retired, I've stayed plenty busy. 
I'm the night director at the Clinch Rock Soup Kitchen as well. That's how I know you, Trent's dad exclaimed. I took your statement on Monday. He looked up at Ed's smirk and said, Hey, I got a head injury over here. Cut me a break. Ed chuckled and said, I'll give you two some time. He squeezed Trenton's shoulder on his way out. Oh, it's so good to see you awake, Dad, Trent said. And to hear your voice, I was so scared. Yeah, sorry I put you through that. What happened? His dad closed his eyes a minute, the gears of memory clearly turning slowly. It was was the truck. The old red pickup. Wait, the one I saw? The one with no plate? It had a plate, though. His eyes grew, and he tried to sit up for a moment. Where are my pants? He asked. I wrote the plate number in my notepad. Trenton rifled through a plastic bag marked personal effects, hanging on the foot of the bed. He found the pants and pulled a wallet, car keys, and a small folding knife out of the pockets. I don't see a notepad. You sure you had it? His dad fell limply back against the pillow, wincing at the pain it caused. They took it. They took my pad. Well, can you remember the plate, or even part of it? No chance. I barely remember anything leading up to the thump on the head. Oh, I was so close. Why were you even out there? Trenton asked. You were supposed to be in Grand Rapids. Another dark cloud of memory seemed to light over the hospital bed. He's dead, Trent. Stephen Branding died a couple days ago. Oh. How? They said it was a cardiac event. So, a heart attack. Yeah. The door swung open and Chief Barton walked in, a massive styrofoam cup of coffee in one hand and his hat in the other. Hey, he's awake, he said, a little too loudly. Hey, Rich. Just so you know, I got your gun from security. It's locked up back at the station. Are they letting you go anytime soon? I don't think so. A nurse popped in here about uh, 25 minutes ago. Seemed to think they're planning to keep me for a few more days, just to keep an eye on me. Good, Trent blurted out. He was struggling to process the news of Branding's heart attack and trying not to connect it with the memory of his dad crumpled and wheezing against the wall. You okay, kid? Barton asked. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Just, you know, worried about dad. Don't, Barton said. He's as tough as they come. Then to his fellow cop, he added, But take your time, Chief. We got everything under control. Some decent physical evidence from the mill. We're following up on that. We're going to find whoever conked you on the melon and we're taking them down. In the meantime, anything we can do for you, don't hesitate to ask. In fact, I've got an extra bunk in Danny's room. If you want, Trent can come stay with us until you're back on your feet. Trent felt a jolt of panic. What? No. No way. I don't know, his dad said. It's probably a good idea. You're old enough to stay by yourself for a night or two, but... Dad, Trent gritted through his teeth. Look at my face. You want me to sleep in the same room as the guy who did this? Barton cleared his throat, but said nothing. I suppose not. But you have to promise me you'll be home by your regular curfew, and you won't be having people over. Agreed? Yeah, sure, Trenton said. Jason's grounded until forever anyway. I guess it's only two more nights, and then you're back up at Picture Falls, his dad said. Are you riding with the mysterious Zoe? Oh, I don't know, Dad. Maybe I shouldn't go. Nonsense. We'll both get a nice break to relax and recharge. We deserve it, don't we? He winked. 
Yeah, I guess we do. I'll swing by and check on him from time to time, Barton offered. Thanks, Rich. Barton set down the coffee and massaged his hat with both hands. Hey, uh, Trent, you mind if I talk to your old man for a few minutes? Police stuff. Sure. Trent squeezed his dad's hand, which he noticed for the first time was now a little smaller than his own, and headed out into the hall. Near the elevators, he found Ed Piper sitting on a bench, flipping through a worn leather Bible. When he saw Trenton, he flipped it closed and stood. On your way out? he asked. Not just yet. They're talking confidential police stuff, I guess. He recentered the bill of his ball cap. Ed seemed to notice that Trent's hands were shaking a half second before he noticed it himself. You okay? Trent shook his head no and felt a wall of tears threatening to crash through. Like the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike, he held them back, knowing he would eventually fail and soon. Come with me, Ed said. Trent managed to keep the tears at bay until he and Ed were safely in the hospital's All Faiths Chapel. In a series of niches on the wall, a cross, a menorah, a Quran, and some sort of bust of an Asian man Trent didn't recognize sat. He plopped down in a half pew in front of the cross and began to weep. Ed sat down next to him and intermittently rubbed his back, waiting patiently for it to pass, all that had been bottled up through the months of mounting pressure, the craziness from Judith lately, the blow-up with Zoe, and now his dad's hospitalization, and the death of Stephen Branding, which weirdly seemed almost on par with all the rest as far as directly affecting Trent's life. Through the tears, he tried to explain all that had been going on to Ed, but he feared he was making little sense. I feel like I've heard all this before. Ed finally said. Trenton wiped the tears onto his sleeve. Huh? Your father. I got to talk to him for about 20 minutes, and he said a lot of the same sort of thing. I'll tell you what I told him. You are living by the wrong book. I, I don't know what that means, Ed. They gave me a copy of that insane faith in Picture Falls. There was some good stuff in it, I guess, but overall, it was dangerous. That kind of thing tells people they're never doing enough, never spiritual enough, never measuring up. People are gluttons for punishment, and they'll pay through the nose for that kind of message. Huh, Trenton said. I totally feel that way. I mean, I've been doing a ton of stuff all summer, busier than ever, but it's all ordinary stuff. Trying to earn money for college, help dad around the house, filling out scholarship applications... He decided not to mention the recent foray into treasure hunting and his efforts to keep a local superhero at bay. Ed chuckled in that way that only grizzled old men can. Ordinary, he said. That's become a dirty word, hasn't it? It's not just this one book, either. There's a hundred of them out there, and speakers and songs and video clips on the Facebooks. Real Christians do amazing things for Jesus, they all say. If you have a family, pay your mortgage, work hard, love your neighbor, well... You're just wasting your life. If it's not extreme and daring, it's not worth doing. Everything's got to be radical these days. <laughs> radical, Trent snickered. Kind of reminds me of my Bible. It's the extreme faith version. The church bought like the gross of them in the mid-90s, and they still give them out to sixth graders every year. It's covered in pictures of people rock climbing and skydiving, doing rollerblade tricks in a half pipe. It all comes from a backwards way of reading the scriptures, the old man said. You're encouraged to find yourself in every story, for, for you to be the hero. So we even tell little children when they read Daniel in the lion's den that the point is for them to be strong and fearless like Daniel. 
We read David and Goliath and tell them they're supposed to be the David and vanquish everything that stands in their path. Only we're not David. We're not supposed to be. Trenton looked up at the man sitting next to him. Who are we then? We're not the point. It's about Jesus. He's the greater David who came to defeat the enemy. He didn't use five stones, but the five wounds he suffered on our behalf. If we're anyone in that story, we're David's brothers who scoffed at him and jeered when he came to save them. I've never heard that before, Trenton said. Well, you need to. When the focus is on me, am I doing enough? Am I strong enough? Am I brave enough? The burden of that will crush you. And it's unbiblical. It's human religion, which demands do, do this, do that. But Jesus says it's done. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yeah, but, I mean, Stephen Branding quoted the Bible, like, a lot, Trent said. Let me tell you a little secret. If you ignore the context, you can use the Bible to justify anything. That's why we've got to study carefully. The first part of the New Testament is what? It's all about what Jesus did for us. The Gospels, lay it all out. And then the rest is pretty much letters from the apostles, and almost all of them start out by, again, laying out what Jesus has accomplished for us, the done part. And then transition into, therefore, do. Here's what you should do in response. You got the done and the therefore do. And you know which is extreme and insane and radical? It's the first part. I don't get it. Think of it like this. What has Jesus done for us? By his blood, he's redeemed us, brought us from spiritual death to life. He's crushed the serpent's head, sealed us with his Holy Spirit, raised us up with him, grafted us into God's people. He's opened the way so we have access to our creator. That stuff is pretty insane. Making sinners into saints, resurrecting the dead. But then when he gets to what we should do in response... It's not quite the crazy adrenaline rush we've been led to believe. It's stuff like, therefore, love one another, teach and embrace sound doctrine, work with your hands to the glory of God, deal honestly with others, forgive each other, care for the poor and needy, tame your tongue, avoid pride and sexual immorality, honor your parents, love your spouse, raise up godly children. None of that will sell books, but it's how God describes the Christian life. Don't get me wrong, it's extreme. You're killing the old self that still lives inside you, but it's an internal war. And when we miss that, we wind up putting on a heavy yoke to try to earn what God has already accomplished. That's when we see men leaving their jobs, for which they're gifted, to enter the ministry, for which they're not. Ministers who tell us that word and sacrament aren't enough. Books that tell us we're not doing enough to help the poor unless we go live under a bridge with them. So what are you saying? Trent asked. My dad shouldn't be a pastor? Well, if he's called to it, he absolutely should. But it's no higher a calling than being a policeman or a shoe salesman or a janitor. All callings are high callings if we do them to the glory of God. I'm just saying it's not sinful to live an ordinary life. And if someone says it is, that's a mark of spiritual immaturity. After all, St. Paul told the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Trent, don't let anyone tell you that's not living out your faith. Trent thought of Judith, who of everyone he knew was most content to live a quiet life and mind her own business, right up until she decided that God wanted her to become a superhero and was calling her to rescue someone. 
He said, we can't all always live quiet lives, though, right? I mean, sometimes the right thing is the extreme thing. Sure, there are certain times when Christians are called upon to put their lives on the line and stand up to power, even to lay down their lives and die for the faith. But when Jesus told us to take up our cross daily and follow him, he was primarily describing not one grand gesture, but a life of obedience, one little step after another, slowly putting to death the old self and becoming more and more like him. That kind of faithfulness isn't an exciting thrill ride. It doesn't look sexy to the world. It doesn't make us feel like a hero. Well, that's okay. We're not the hero. And when the time comes to lay it all on the line and do something huge for Christ, you know who actually follows through with that? People who know they're not the hero. Who've plodded along faithfully day after day with no thought of glory or adventure or turning their spiritual life into skydiving and rock climbing. You want to be like Jesus? You need to learn to rest in him rather than trying to prove that your faith is insane enough to earn God's love. Yes, Jesus toiled for the kingdom, but he was also able to sleep in the belly of a ship during a horrible storm. That's my prayer for you and for your dad. Trent nodded. I get it. Thanks, Ed. You know, before today, I think I'd heard you say about two dozen words total. Ed smiled sheepishly. I don't do well with groups, especially groups of kids. Always been more of a one-on-one kind of guy. But they were short a man, and I had the week free. He reached into his back pocket and pulled out a round plastic container, which he popped open and held out toward Trent. Would you like a mint? Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gut Check Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at Zach at ZacharyBartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended. Or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Good.